Welcome to Stanford Legal. I'm Rich Ford. And I'm Joe Bankman. And today we're talking with our colleague David Sklansky about the FBI raid on President Trump's home in Florida and about other legal cases that may or may not pop up against the former president. Well, Joe, it was a wild ride with the FBI raiding Donald Trump's house or um, executing a search warrant to look for documents that had not been handed back to the National Archives. Uh, so much going on here and lots of room to, you know, kind of wonder and speculate about what this might mean for um, possible prosecution of the president in the future. That's right, Rich. Some of us were wondering if there are going to be prosecutions based on uh, evidence from the January 6 hearings or election fraud and interference with elections in Georgia or uh, fraud on New York State, all uh, ongoing investigations with respect to Georgia and New York State. And now this comes up, which some of us find just befuddling. I mean, what's Trump doing with all those documents? Right. Are they related to some of these other investigations? Is there evidence in there that he's trying to hide? Or is this just a completely new issue? Well, we're going to find out the answer to that, or at least have someone more knowledgeable than we are help us find the answer in our longtime colleague, David Skolansky, who uh, is a former uh, federal prosecutor and has been on this show a number of times and has a gift for explaining how things look like to someone who knows what it's like to prosecute a criminal. Hi, David. Welcome to the show. We're here today to talk about Donald Trump, once again, Donald Trump, and the specifically the documents at Mar-a-Lago that um, were the subject of an FBI search warrant that was executed recently. And David, maybe you could just walk us through you know, what is going on with these documents? Why is it illegal for Trump to have them? And if it is, and um, if it's illegal, why did it take um, so long for the FBI to execute a search warrant to get them? Yeah, what, what's happening here? We don't know for sure the answer to any of those questions, um, partly because we don't know what documents uh, the FBI actually retrieved from Mar-a-Lago. What we do know is that they were executing a search warrant that suggested they had probable cause to believe that uh, evidence would be found of three different crimes. One crime, uh, the crime that's created by uh, the 1917 Espionage Act, makes it illegal for somebody to knowingly hold on to information relating to the national security, knowing that they it, the information could wind up helping America's enemies and hurting the United States. There's a separate federal statute that makes it a felony to willfully remove documents from a public office without authorization, um, whether or not they have anything to do with the national defense. And the warrant also suggested that the agents were looking for evidence of obstruction of justice, specifically altering or destroying records uh, in order to frustrate an investigation or a legal proceeding, which suggests that they had some reason to believe 
that someone at Mar-a-Lago uh, might have been destroying records or altering records to cover up the fact that documents that Trump wasn't supposed to have were still in his possession in Mar-a-Lago. Why did it take so long? Um, I, again, we don't know for sure, but my, my guess is because the normal approach of the Department of Justice, in any case where there's an allegation that somebody has uh, taken documents that they shouldn't have taken from the office that they used to work out of, is to first arrange for a voluntary return of those documents. And there's some indication that there were ongoing negotiations between the Justice Department and Trump and his people in Mar-a-Lago to arrange return of documents that he wasn't supposed to have. Um, the, the search apparently was motivated by the realization on the part of the, uh, the Department of Justice that that process wasn't operating in a satisfactory way. So what we're hearing is that the Justice Department is alleging as probable cause, at least in, in the eyes of the judges who looked, judge that looked at it, that Trump is holding on to documents he shouldn't be holding on to. And there are three specific legal crimes that could be committed. The third is destruction of evidence or something like that. Is that simply related to, to the first two? That is, is it simply destructing, destroying evidence related to the fact that I'm going to keep these documents? Or could it be you're, there's something else in those documents and you're destroying evidence with respect to some other crimes or some other things that have gone on? Almost certainly it's the first, Joe. Um, we, we don't know for sure, but, but it's very likely that what motivated the inclusion of that third crime was some reason to believe that um, records had been altered in order to cover up the fact uh, that Trump had records that he wasn't supposed to have. So the records that might be altered aren't necessarily, in fact, they probably are not the records that were taken from the White House. They're, they could be, for example, videos that were taken at Mar-a-Lago because apparently there are security cameras around Mar-a-Lago and the Justice Department was reviewing the tapes uh, to see what was going in or out of the room where these where the documents were, were held. It's possible, though, that government may also think that some of the documents that were taken from the White House were altered so that it wouldn't be clear that they were taken from the White House. You know, one of the things that we've heard in defense of Trump's retention of the records is it's really the equivalent of a footfall because he could have declassified everything anyway. In that case, he could have taken everything and kept them forever uh, with impunity. Yeah, that's completely wrong because um, none of the tr crimes that uh, are alleged um, in the search warrant affidavit hinge on the documents being classified. So it, 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 declassifying them would not remove the illegality of taking them without authorization from, from the White House or holding on to them when there was reason to believe they could damage the national security or altering records to hide the fact that he had taken them without authorization. So David, there are a lot of theories swirling around now about these documents. And so charge number one, that it, they are, might threaten national security in some way, 
you know, gives rise to speculation, maybe fevered speculation on the part of Trump's detractors that these documents contain, you know, national security secrets that he might have been providing to other people who weren't supposed to have them, that the reason the documents were there was, you know, frankly, uh, to be blunt, because he was selling secrets. Um, is that... Is that is that necessarily what the first charge means, or is this just what people are are kind of speculating? That's not necessarily what the first charge means. It could simply mean that uh, there are sensitive information um, in these documents, and uh, the documents were being held in Mar-a-Lago um, in a location um, uh, uh, that made them vulnerable to being seen or taken uh, by other people without authorization. You know, <laughs> Mar-a-Lago is where Trump lives, but it's also this private club where people pay a lot of money to go and hang out. So the first charge is not necessarily about uh, fears that Trump would sell the information or give it to somebody else. It could simply be that he was holding on to it in a place where it wasn't secure, because it, in addition to being his private residence, it's, it's also this weird kind of rich pe person's club. You know, we talked a minute before the show about motive here. I mean, Trump, when he was president, had access to all the secret documents he wanted, and he doesn't seem like the kind of guy that was going to sit up at night rereading them. So why take boxes and boxes of stuff back home with you? Yeah, well, Joe, um, you're the psychologist, not, not me. So I don't know. But my guess is, because uh, we're, we're all kind of amateur Trump watchers at this point, that it, it's not so much that he wanted the documents. It's that he didn't like the idea that he had to give them back. Um, there have been reports that he said, these are mine. So it, 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 it feels kind of like the second grader who is asked to turn over something that she didn't know that she had. But now that you mention it, no, it's hers and she doesn't want to give it back. So in the normal course, somebody has documents like this, the government wants them back. And the normal person, maybe cowed by authority, says, of course, I'm not going to argue with the FBI or the CIA, whoever's asking them back. But, but Trump is not the normal person. And when he sees authority, instead of retreating, he kind of puffs up his chest in advance, metaphorically. So that's one of the, I guess, one of the theories about what could explain why he doesn't give them back, even if we don't have an explanation of why he has them in the first place. Yeah, and I think it's important to keep in mind that Trump is not the only person who may have been committing crimes here. There's, I don't know who else is down there at Mar-a-Lago, but Trump isn't the only person who's handling these documents or dealing with the people from the Department of Justice who are trying to get them back. So they're, they're, although if you're looking around Mar-a-Lago for somebody who's likely to have a, a huge ego and not like the idea that he has to comply with the law, Trump is obviously on the list of the usual suspects. So someone else, in theory, could, could have a more understandable motive, although we can't even imagine what that would be either. 
Yeah, that's true. So it's hard to know. But um, what does seem reasonably clear is that the Department of Justice believes and convinced uh, a magistrate judge that there's probable cause to believe that somebody at Mar-a-Lago is holding on to documents um, that are not supposed to be there and that either can endanger the national security or were willfully removed from uh, a public office in the White House, or that somebody down in Mar-a-Lago has been altering records to obstruct an investigation into whether uh, documents have been taken from the White House and improperly held at Mar-a-Lago. What happens next, David, now that the documents are seized Take us through, from a prosecutor's perspective, what the next steps are. Two things are going to have to be decided relatively soon. There is a motion before the magistrate judge who issued the warrant uh, to unseal the affidavit that was used to obtain it, um, as well as um, information about the records that were obtained through the, uh, the warrant. The judge has indicated that he would like to be able he thinks maybe he should unseal part of that. And he's asked the Department of Justice to see if they could redact it to take out the parts that would be sensitive. So that's one thing that we'll, we'll find that has to be addressed relatively soon. Also, Trump's lawyers have asked a, a different judge to appoint a special master to go through all of the material that was obtained before the Department of Justice looks at it to make sure that there was nothing taken that the Department of Justice shouldn't be able to see. I think that that motion is probably going to fail because I don't think that Trump lawyers have any good argument for why a special master is needed in this situation. But if it succeeds, that will delay the process because a special master will have to be appointed. That person will have to go through the material before the Department of Justice looks through it. Um, if the special master isn't appointed, then the Department of Justice can can continue reviewing the material, and they are they're going to look to see whether they have uncovered not just documents that don't belong in Mar-a-Lago, uh, but evidence either in those documents or somewhere else uh, that uh, these that Trump or somebody else was holding on to documents criminally, that is with a criminal intent or altered records to obstruct uh, in the investigation into the removal of documents from the White House. And when you say, thank you, David, when you say criminal intent, what would a criminal intent be? All the statutes that were charged in the search warrant require that in order to violate them, somebody has to act willfully, which uh, normally means uh, that they have some kind of improper uh, intent, that they it's not just an honest mistake. Not just an honest mistake. And it seems from what we hear, and as you describe it, that it would be hard for Trump to demonstrate what the Justice Department would consider an honest mistake since it looks like they asked them for the documents and they didn't get them. If the documents are what they're supposed to be, then that would look bad, I would think, for Trump. Sure, it would look bad. It, it's possible, of course, that the Department of Justice was dealing with Trump and his staff and asking for records to be returned. And Trump and his staff 
overlooked some documents that they should have returned or mistakenly believed that documents fell out of outside the category of documents that needed to be returned. So even though Trump uh, and his people were dealing with the Department of Justice, it's possible that they, they Trump or somebody else could have been holding on to documents without criminal intent. So what the Department of Justice will be looking for, in addition to uh, trying to retrieve documents that shouldn't be there, is whether there's reason to believe that Trump or somebody else didn't just um, mistakenly hold on to these documents, but held on to documents knowing that these were documents that they were not allowed to have, that the possession of which violated these criminal statutes, or that somebody at Mar-a-Lago, Trump or somebody else, altered records, either the records taken from the White House or, for example, video records at Mar-a-Lago to cover up the fact that uh, documents were not being returned. More with David Skolansky coming up on Stanford Legal. So we're back with David Skolansky discussing the possible criminal prosecution of Donald Trump and some of the issues raised in the January 6th hearing. David, what are the kind of things that a prosecutor would think about when they're prosecuting not just a former president of the United States, but this particular former president? Well, it would be wild. It would be different. Um, I, I think um, there, there, there would be an interest on both sides to resolve any criminal charge without a trial. Um, on the part of the government, um, a trial involving a, a former president and particularly a former president like Donald Trump would be unpredictable and difficult to manage in all kinds of respects. From Trump's perspective, uh, I, 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 a trial would also be undesirable because, um, you know, in a trial, you don't get to talk whenever you want. The judge is in charge uh, and uh, the lawyers are in charge. And um, that's not the kind of environment in, in, that Trump is going to want to be in. Um, it, it's a, an environment that, that he's avoided um, in, um, in other uh, legal proceedings that he's been entangled in. So I, I doubt there would be a trial even if there was a, le a legal charge here. That's so interesting, David. And of course, it's, it's understandable in, in one sense, but it almost seems like one of these game theoretic situations where it's true both sides have in some incentive to avoid a trial, but that doesn't tell us where they're ending up. And if they can't agree and there is a trial and you're the prosecutor, uh, would the trial be in, where would the jury pool be for a trial like that? Where would it be held, do you think? Well, it would depend. Uh, it, it could be in Washington, D.C., where the documents were removed, or, or it could be in Florida, where the documents are now being held. E either way, um, there would be a, a, a lengthy process of uh, identifying jurors who could be impartial. Um, many, many potential jurors would, would be weeded out. It would take a while to get a, pool, uh, a group of 12 people that seem um, like they could approach uh, the, the case objectively and fairly. Um, 
there would be lots of arguments uh, about what kinds of issues can be raised in the trial and what kinds of uh, issues uh, are, are off limits. Um, so there'd be, a, there'd be a lot of proceedings out to, before we got to a jury and then outside the jury's presence. Um, other than that, it, it would look like a, a, like a lot of other uh, trials. There, the prosecution would call witnesses to try to prove its case. The defense might or might not uh, call its own witnesses. Their, um, Trump's initial instinct would be to make the trial about the government's misconduct. That would almost certainly be shut down. Um, so he would wind up the defense would wind up trying to argue that um, there was no criminal intent here. We hear about things like jury nullification, where the jury says, I don't care what you're proving. I'm not going to do something. Yeah, it's always possible. I mean, I, um, I, I, you, you can't force a jury to return a, a guilty verdict. So if the jury decided that... Um, uh, this was just a stupid crime to charge, and it really wasn't that serious. There's always the, the chance that the jury would just acquit on, on that basis. Um, it's hard to know how much of a risk that would be for the government without knowing more about the documents and without knowing more about uh, how egregious the conduct was that led the government uh, to conclude that they needed to go in with a search warrant until instead of continuing the negotiations that they had been pursuing. I'm just wondering about selecting this jury. I mean, given what we know about the polarization of the country and the number, it, I, I, how are you going to find anyone on a jury who doesn't have a strong opinion about Donald Trump? Well, you don't have to find jurors who don't who who lack a strong opinion. You just have to find jurors who can be fair and open-minded. Um, and um, I, it, it's more of a challenge here than it is in many criminal cases. On the other hand, uh, there are lots of criminal trials that happen with famous people uh, about whom many people have opinions. Um, Courts have lots of experience um, selecting uh, jurors and uh, instructing them in the duty to be impartial and to put aside uh, any preconceptions that they have. Um, and and the, the, you know, the, the, this trial, if there is a trial, will not be about are Republicans better than Democrats. Uh, it, it won't be about how good a person is Donald Trump. It'll be about whether Trump or whoever else winds up getting charged um, violated a specific criminal statute by satisfying the elements of, of a particular crime. Um, so I, it's true that the country is polarized. It's true that um, a lot of our discussion is poisoned and poisonous. Um, but I think that... Um, it's it's doable um, to, to to have a trial. I mean that we that is the what the law of evidence the 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 procedure of trials have been developed over decades and centuries precisely um, as a, as a way of of bringing people together and having them 
reason together uh, about the facts. Um, so I, uh, I, 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 I'm, I, I, as much as uh, the government would want to settle this case if there was a charge, my guess is uh, that from a game theoretic perspective, the, the party that would be most interested in settling this is Trump. Wow, that's really interesting. And I, I have to imagine that the trial, if it existed, would be high theater like so many other trials in our nation's history. Uh, I want to, David, use our remaining time to go off this incredibly engrossing and important issue to some others uh, uh, that also involve former President Trump. Uh, there's two other trials that are going on or, or, or might be going on in state court, uh, one in Georgia and one in New York. Can you say a little bit about those? Sure. So we, we're in this weird position of, with, with a former president being the subject, not just of one criminal investigation, the one that we've been talking about, but four criminal investigations. There's um, the um, there's the Mar-a-Lago document investigation. Uh, there's the the uh, criminal investigation into the events surrounding the January 6th assault on the Capitol. Um, there is a criminal investigation being carried out with a grand jury in Georgia by uh, the district attorney um, in Atlanta that is uh, pursuing possible charges of uh, election fraud in Georgia um, in connection with efforts to uh, pressure election officials in Georgia to come up with votes for Trump or to certify a fake slate of electors uh, in Georgia. And then uh, there's the ongoing investigation by the district attorney in Manhattan um, into uh, allegations that uh, Trump and the Trump organization um, fraudulently uh, inflated uh, the value of assets. It, it's, a, it's a remarkable situation and, and um, I, I think for a long time, I thought, as lots of people thought, that it was unlikely that Char Trump would ever be charged with a crime. But um, one of the things that we're now dealing with is because we have four separate investigations and they all are addressing different sets of allegations. So they're, they're really four separate investigations. Even if each of these investigations is unlikely to result in a criminal charge, we still might be in a world where it's more probable than not that Trump will be charged. Because, you know, if, if there's, say, a 20% ch chance that he's going to get charged in Mar-a-Laga Mar investigation, 20% chance in the um, January 6th investigation, maybe, um, uh, say, a 20% chance that he'd get charged in Georgia and maybe 5% chance or 10% chance you get charged in Manhattan, you, you combine all those and it means that um, uh, there's more than a 50% chance he's going to get charged in one of them. <laughs> and and I have to say, uh, you know, with, with regard to the, the, the January 6th uh, allegations, this is his possible criminal liability in, con in connection with the violent assault on the Capitol um, uh, following um, the, the um, 2020 election. Um, 
I feel like the 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 hearings in in the House were were game changers. Um, before those hearings, it seemed unlikely uh, that the Department of Justice would wind up thinking that it was appropriate to charge Trump with a crime in connection with uh, that assault. Now it it it's it. I really feel like um, things have flipped, and the question is. What's the argument against charging him? From the perspective of a prosecutor, um, what do you think about the January 6th hearings? You started off saying that you thought they were a game changer, but walk us through what January 6th could possibly mean for Donald Trump in terms of criminal liability. So the hearings were were really extraordinary in in, in all kinds of respects. and I, I do think that they they powerfully changed the calculus about how likely it is that Trump would get charged in connection with, with that assault. Um, before those hearings, I think the conventional wisdom, certainly this is how I thought, um, was uh, that, that it'd be hard to charge Trump uh, with uh, anything involving January 6th because there wasn't, you need to prove that he believed uh, that he was subverting democratic processes um, as opposed to believing that he was standing up for democratic processes. So what if he really believed that there was election fraud um, and he really believed that it would be wrong to certify Joe Biden's election? then it, it's hard to say that he's, he had criminal intent um, in connection with efforts to get Congress to change, um, uh, to refuse to certify Biden's election. So January 6th uh, changed uh, that calculus in two ways. First, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, January 6th, the, the January 6th hearings changed that calculus in two ways. The, the first way it changed it was um, by providing much more evidence than I think most of us were expecting to see and hear um, that uh, Trump was aware uh, that the allegations of election fraud were baseless. Um, The the second way in which uh, it it changed the calculus was um, by providing really uh, startling uh, evidence, um, and I'm thinking here particularly the testimony of Mark Meadows uh, staffer, Cassie Hutchinson, um, that um, Trump had the intention to uh, incite violence and to allow violence to proceed. Um, because even if Trump thought that there was real election fraud in 2020, it would still be criminal and a a pretty shocking crime to incite a violent effort to obstruct the certification of the vote. It's, It's one thing to try to get Congress to certify false electors. It's another thing to try to whip up a mob to use violent force to stop uh, the congressional certification. Um, and um, the, 
uh, among the many interesting decisions that were made by uh, the select committee investigating uh, the events of January 6th was the decision to focus on what Trump did once the uh, riot uh, had started. Um, um, many people, including me, had focused before these hearings on what his mental state was when he gave his speech uh, to the crowd that later assaulted uh, the Capitol. Um, but uh, the, the evidence about what his mental state was once the riot started is relevant for two reasons. First, it may be, he may have criminal liability for dereliction of duty, for failing to do anything to stop the violence once it started. And second, um, uh, his liability for putting the riot, uh, uh, for, for inciting the riot in the first place, turns on what his intent was before the riot took place, when he was addressing the crowd. Um, but what he did and said once the riot uh, was underway has a lot of probative value for figuring out what his intent was when he was speaking to the crowd. So um, th there's all kinds of um, prudential reasons for thinking that it would be a bad idea to charge a former president uh, with a crime, particularly in a time a polarization as as divisive and um, poisonous as 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 it is now, um, but um, at some point you need to ask: Well, what would it take hmm. uh, to charge a former president with a crime, um, or are we going to say that a former president can never be charged with criminal conduct? And if we're not willing to say that a former president can never be uh, charged with criminal conduct, what do you? What more do you want? Like, at, at what? You know, when 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 you have evidence of of a president inciting violence and refusing to intervene to stop violence when the life of the vice president is at stake, when uh, vital constitutional processes are being shut down by force, you got to ask yourself, okay, so if that's not the kind of crime that would justify a criminal charge of a former president, what kind of crime does qualify? Or are we just going to say that if you're president, you can do whatever you want? You can, as Trump himself once said, shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue and expect to walk scot-free. So I, I, I think that in, in a, a country that uh, is committed to the rule of law, where we're committed to the principle that no one is above the law, we can't say that a, a former president can never be charged with a crime. That seems off the table. So then the question is, what do you need? How extreme does it need to be? And it's hard for me to think of a sensible place to draw the line that doesn't seem to have been crossed 
by the kinds of activities that the January 6th hearings suggest that Trump engaged in. We've been talking with David Skolansky about the criminal actions that are in the works or might be in the works against former President Donald Trump. And we end it, David, with uh, an impassioned statement to the effect that if this doesn't cross the line, what will have crossed the line? And I think on that note, we'll end for today and have you back when and if some of these trials or actions materialize. Thanks for having me on. Thanks to David Sklansky. I'm Joe Bankman for Rich Ford, and this is Stanford Legal.